Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Aid Evolved. I'm your host, Rowena Luke. This is a podcast about technology, poverty, and health. But this particular episode is going to follow a bit of a different format for two reasons. The first reason is that this is the first in our series of side chats. Going forward, our regular episodes are going to be coming out every two weeks. On alternating weeks, I may or may not sneak in a side chat. These side chats might be shorter. They're definitely going to be more experimental. And maybe I'll bring in some unusual or offbeat guests that might not make our regular roster. Basically, these side chats are my room to play. The other reason that this particular episode is going to be a bit different than other episodes is that this particular one is a little bit more personal than some of the other things I've published. Basically, what happened is I was writing a thank you note to Eric, the fellow who was on the podcast last week. And as I was writing the email, it ballooned into a three-page essay about how his research group changed my life. Just for reference, that group was called TIER, Technology and Infrastructure for Emerging Regions. And it was based out of the University of California in Berkeley. Being part of TIER taught me an immense amount about how to work in technology and development, but not in the way that you might expect. And that's why we're talking. In this episode, I'm going to share with you that email that I wrote to Eric, because it describes some pretty formative experiences in my life that have helped to shape my career and the decisions that I've made in my career. So I thought some of you might also enjoy hearing about it. If I had to sum it up in one sentence, I would say this isn't a story about picking the wrong solution. This is a story about picking the right problem. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe to get more episodes of Aid Evolved wherever you get your podcasts. Now, on with the show. It was 2005. I came to Berkeley, California as a master's student, knowing the kind of day-to-day work that I wanted to do. I wanted to build things. I wanted to make things work, hardware or software, with my own two hands. At the same time, when I look back to my weekends and my evenings, I was never coding. I spent my time volunteering at a local crisis center or writing letters for the Amnesty Club at school or or mentoring inner city kids, which is funny now that I think about it since I don't really know anything about kids. I wanted to make the world a better place, but I didn't see a lot of ways to marry this love of engineering with my desire to do good. I thought maybe working on search, internet search, might fulfill this goal, which is how I ended up at Berkeley. A few months in, I got wind of some crazy computer scientists, also a student there, this woman who had spent Christmas in Ghana in West Africa, setting up wireless networks and calling it research. I had no idea this was possible. This was crazy to me. I found this woman, I tracked her down, and then I refused to leave her alone until she opened the door for me into her world. That woman, Melissa Densmore, who now teaches at the University of Cape Town, was the one who connected me with Paul, who landed me my internship at the Intel Research Lab. Over the next two years, the three of us would end up traipsing all over Ghana. What we had was a solution, delay-tolerant networking technology, looking for a problem. We thought we found one. What we found were hordes of doctors, both in the United States and in Ghana, who were willing to say, sure, when asked if remote teleconsultation could solve a problem they faced. 
By this, I mean doctor in one hospital, send some slides or some images to doctors in another hospital and get some clarity on what exactly is going on with a particular patient. Now, when we talked to these doctors, we didn't ask whether this consultation issue was the most important problem that they faced or how often they faced it. I wish we had. I didn't understand the power dynamics at the time. How people will tell you your solution is needed if there's a chance you can also provide funding, hardware, publicity, any number of resources. What I thought at that time was I thought we were making a promise to those doctors that we could and would solve this problem for them. When my time at Berkeley was up, I wasn't ready to let them down. I also wasn't interested in doing research. I knew I wanted to build real systems and communities that could serve the needs of today. So I went back to Canada, this is my 24-year-old self, and I set up a nonprofit with a mission that sounded very grand. But really, I was just trying to finish the work that I had started with TIER. I named the nonprofit Amita, a word that meant limitless. Paul was able to sneak me certain kinds of equipment and materials and resources. I have no idea, by the way, how much of this was above or below the board with Eric. We'll find out. And Melissa was always cheering me on. I took a part-time gig on the side to pay the bills, but spent the vast majority of my unpaid time on this effort for over a year. Looking back on those years, I did everything wrong. I didn't talk enough to my users. I didn't fundraise properly. I spent too much time working on a piece of software that nobody wanted. I worried too much about paying the bills. I skimped on food that would keep me healthy. I traveled around Ghana by myself and stayed for $4 a night in dirty, unsafe rooms. At one point, I spent three days alone on the floor of a hotel room with stomach cramps from street chicken I'd eaten. Don't ever eat the street chicken, guys. Another night, and this I remember vividly, I woke up struggling to breathe and foaming at the mouth. I later learned that excessive use of expired pesticides can cause such a reaction, but at the time I had no idea of this kind of thing. I called my sister in Canada, a practicing doctor, for help, and she told me she was worried that I would suffocate to death in my sleep. But I had nowhere else to go in this strange city in a foreign country. So I opened up all the windows and slept on a chair next to the cold night air. Thankfully, I lived. With enough time, of course, came a little bit more wisdom. I started to understand the country better. I had thought ordering food was frustratingly slow, but I realized fast food is everywhere if you know where to look. I thought exercise was some white man's privilege, then learned that Many Ghanaians love to get fit, and a lot of them do it at five in the morning in these tightly packed running squads before it gets too hot. I made friends that I maintain to this day, including a couple who nursed me back to health in their home when malaria defeated me for a week. I saw the servers we set up, the functioning internet, the software platforms all running now in the biggest hospitals in the country. And at the same time, the doctors we built it for were just too busy with more pressing challenges to even sit down in front of the computer, and they were making the right trade-offs. I saw the clinicians frantically treating patients. They didn't have the hours to spare to learn new software, particularly software that wouldn't help with the majority of their patients. In these hospitals, they already had access to lots of training materials, resources, peers, hardware, and everything else. Eventually, I realized my mistake. I realized that I'd spent so much time honing the right solution to the wrong problem. We confirmed that teledermatology and teleradiology were the most effective subspecialties for remote consultation, 
We honed the usability and reduced the number of clicks to finding the right specialist with the right availability to consult remotely. I started to see what was right in front of me the whole time. That occasionally, there's an unusual condition that requires remote subspecialist consultation within or outside of a country, but the vast majority of a doctor's time was spent treating common, obvious, and heartbreakingly preventable diseases. These doctors were treating hundreds of patients a day, compared to similar doctors in the United States who would treat two or three dozen a day. And there was another event that opened my eyes. Melissa and I befriended one of the doctors, Dr. Gardy. We joined her for a one-day outreach in a rural village where we played pharmacist and prepared packets of pills for distribution. I mean, it's scary just to think about that. At the same time, Dr. Gardy saw probably 500 patients in a single day. They were lined up outside of the clinic singing songs before dawn to prepare for our arrival, and they kept on coming and coming until the wee hours of the night. They hadn't seen a doctor in years, and they were thrilled to see this one. Dr. Gardy skipped lunch and then dinner and drank a bottle of Coke instead to keep her energy up. Now, what struck me about that visit was how ecstatic this village was to welcome a healthcare worker, how undertreated and neglected their diseases were, and how every small piece of advice or direction from Dr. Gardy was treasured like gold. This was a community thirsty for knowledge, thirsty for help, and largely cut off from the rest of the world in a way urban communities are not. Towards the start of my second year in this nonprofit, Amita, I just knew it was time to pivot. I knew I needed to stop working with the overcharged doctors in the hospitals and believed that the right place for my technology intervention was in providing smartphone support to isolated health workers in rural areas. I wonder if some of you can guess where this is going. I was preparing a grant application to Canada's IDRC, a government agency that funds research to support underserved regions of the world. As part of this, I reached out to Brian, a PhD student at the University of Washington, whom I knew through collaborative research projects at TIER with Eric. Brian connected me to some guy named Neil, who seemed to have some good ideas. As one does, I stalked him relentlessly on the internet. And that's how I discovered Dimagi, where Neil works. Here was an organization that was already working with rural health workers, already working on smartphones, and way ahead of where I wanted to be. I was particularly thrilled to see they had a CEO who could handle the administration, the business development, the fundraising, all of that, creating a space where I could do the work that I love, building tools to help improve healthcare for those who need it most. I refused to leave them alone until they agreed to hire me. And the rest? It's history. Demagi consumed my life for over a decade. When I joined, it was a five-person software development shop, and it was super fun to be part of its rise to the 200-person organization that it is today. I've personally worked on digital health interventions in 18 countries and have overseen teams that have worked in many more. I succeeded in my mission, in my hope at the time, to do a ton of work at the community level and in later years, I even returned to working with doctors at the clinical level. But this time, I sought solutions that would improve the work of the majority of a doctor's life, not just make one part of it harder and more complicated than it needed to be. Eric said last week, the pivot is part of the process. This was my pivot, this 
sunsetting of Amida, this U-turn from what I was doing by myself in Ghana to joining Damagi. This is how I learned. And I promise you, the lessons I learned in these meandering years that I had are lessons that I'll never forget. It's hard to sum up all the things that I learned from that experience, but again, if I had to, I would say my advice is to make sure that the problem you're solving is a problem worth solving. I might also add, just because you start a project doesn't mean you need to finish it. That's it for today. If you made it this far, let me know what you thought. Send me an email at rowena at I'll see you next week. Bye.